Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Harry's, The Great Courses Plus, Quip, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Just after Christmas, on December 29, 1972, 163 passengers boarded a nearly brand new Lockheed L-1011 jet that belonged to the now-defunct Eastern Airlines. The $20 million aircraft was the height of luxury at the time with a sizable airy cabin and long rows of nine seats across, separated by two aisles in what they called a 252 configuration. It was so quiet during flight that it was called the Whisper Liner. The fuselage was spacious with generous headroom for the occupants. The L-1011 also had an incredibly sophisticated CAT-3C autopilot system, which, when in operation, could automatically land the plane, even in conditions of zero visibility. A more common feature now, at the time, it was state-of-the-art. It would not be enough to prevent tragedy on this night, however. Flight 401 added a complement of 13 crew members to the 163 passengers for a total of 176 souls on board. Only 75 of those people would survive the night. The flight crew had over 50,000 hours of combined flight experience, with a collective 639 of them in the L-1011, which at this point was a nearly brand new plane. Eastern had flown their first one in service just eight months earlier. Flight 401 almost made it from JFK Airport in New York to its destination in Miami when a small green light came on in the cockpit that would unleash a tragic chain of events resulting in a terrible crash into the Everglades. Like all astonishing legends, the legend of Flight 401 begins where most stories end, far beyond the realm of accepted reason. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Watch out for fire on this airplane. An apparition of just the head of second officer and flight engineer Don Repo, as seen and heard by two crew members on board another aircraft that would lose two engines to fire on its next leg. Join us tonight for the bizarre and fascinating tale of the crash of Flight 401 and the hauntings that followed it. Wait, are you, are you an airline pilot now? No, if I was an airline pilot, I would make an announcement over the intercom like, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're back. We're looking at your left window. And you would do it super loud right when the movie's starting to get good. <laughs> <laughs> right, it, it pauses the movie and you can, uh, so you can see uh, Mount Shasta. Or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, folks, we are back. And tonight we get to announce some pretty exciting stuff. That's right. You know, we weren't sure it was going to work out because everything is so seat of the pants around here, but we have actually managed to pull off getting some fun stuff into the store for our first special Black Friday through Cyber Monday sale, and we wanted to give you a heads up. 
For example, those of you who like the limited run hoodies we do, we have a special holiday colored one in the store that weekend. Also, I know a lot of people save our shows up and listen to them later, which is great, but they're going to miss the boat on this one because we commissioned our incredibly talented friend, listener, and artist, David Spencer, to create six collectible pint glasses based on characters from prior episodes of the show. And man, did they come out cool. Uh, Tess and I will be sharing shots of the glasses on our social media accounts the next week or so. So follow us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, if you don't already, to see those. Collect all six. I've always wanted to say that ever since uh, watching uh, those children's toy commercials. Oh, yeah, we grew up on those. Yeah. (laughs) Saturday morning. There was always a set to collect. (laughs) Well, that's where I got the idea for this, honestly. (laughs) No, it's a good idea. You know, these glasses really are something. And it being the holiday season... We went with a more wintry theme for them, and they will look great with a nice cold beer. Or a glass of eggnog. Yes, or a glass of whatever your beverage of choice is in them. Or if you're like me, honestly, I may just build some kind of shadow box and hang them <laughs> on the wall, you know, because long-term investment value. I know you're in love with these, and uh, you, you probably won't even unwrap them. But yeah, you, you might be overestimating our cultural value there, partner. <laughs> I'm just saying, going to make a shadow box. That's not happening. But, <laughs> well, I, for one, will be having a beer in mine. Well, whatever you decide to do with them, they are extremely... Extremely limited and likely to sell out quick. So hit our store at 8 a.m. Eastern, that will be 7 Central, 6 Mountain, and 5 a.m. Pacific on Black Friday to pre-order the special glasses or the hoodies. They will ship out after we get them in from the printers to our warehouse in December. The sale lasts through midnight Eastern time on Cyber Monday and while supplies last. There, see, that's what I've always wanted to say. (laughs) While supplies last. Yeah, there were a few more phrases that were pounded into our heads as children to bug your parents about. Exactly. But in this case, there will be a limited number of match sets of all six that come with a signed certificate of authenticity from us. And then the remaining ones will be sold in pre-selected pairings. Like a fine wine. Mm. Again, head over to AstonishingLegends.com and find our store from our homepage there at 8 a.m. Eastern on November 29th. Black Friday is November 29th. Uh, This is 2019. To get access to all of our regular merch at a store-wide 10% discount. Plus, pre-order holiday hoodies and these collector pint glasses, which will be shipped out after we get them into our warehouse and the manufacturer. The sale will end at midnight on Monday, December 2nd. That's Cyber Monday. And just to be clear, these are pre-order. All this stuff is in production right now, but we won't get it for a week or so, maybe a week and a half until after this sale is closed. Wow, this really sounds like a real retail thing. You know? I know, right? It's exciting. <laughs> oh, but by the way, did you fix that complicated URL thing for the holiday messages we need people to send in, or did you make it more complicated? <laughs> well, how could I not fix it after all the mm. crap you gave me? I, listen, quick reminder, folks, we still need special holiday messages from you guys for our pending long-lost Christmas episode. To find out how to do that, go to our website, to the contact menu, and look for holiday messages, or simply point your browser to tinyurl.com slash astonishing messages for complete instructions. That's tinyurl.com slash astonishing messages. And uh, you'll find all the instructions there. You have until midnight on Thanksgiving Day, November 28th, to get those to us. That's midnight Eastern time. Well, that is much better. Are you, are you sure you're not going to add on some more slashes and uh, 
hey, hyphens, hyphenated yeah. words. I know, I know. It's before the dot com. We'll okay. probably get like three messages. It'll be the shortest montage, holiday message montage ever. We'll just have to do it ourselves, pretending to be different people. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last housekeeping note here. We'd really like to thank everyone who has come out in support of our first endeavor into a new show, The Midnight Library. It's already had over 100,000 listens since we launched, and this weekend, the eighth and final episode of Season 1 is dropping. So if you haven't already checked it out, find The Midnight Library wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. We're hoping to run Season 2 in the first quarter of 2020, depending on how many people continue to listen. So if you enjoyed it, please spread the word. Yes, and a big shout-out to our friend Dave Glover and his partners in crime, Tony Colombo and Rachel Zimmerman, over at the Dave Glover Show on 97.1 in St. Louis, where they recently had Miranda, the host of the Midnight Library, on for a guest spot. It was as candid as she'll ever get, and they released their show as a podcast, too. So if you don't live in St. Louis, where you're probably already listening to him, look for the Dave Glover Show wherever you get your podcasts and check out their Paranormal Wednesday segments, which Forrest and I have been on a few times now, and most recently Miranda was on from the Midnight Library. And by the way, we're going to be having him on in the early part of 2020 because he has a pretty amazing amazing story from the Sally House, and uh, we wanted to share that with our listeners, but that'll be uh, at the beginning of the new year. Indeed. And one last quick programming note, folks. We are dark for the next two weeks after tonight's show because I will be sleepy from all the turkey. That's the <laughs> only reason, really. We will be back, though, with a two-part series on the Stanley Hotel. Uh, the first part of that will come out on December 14th, because what are the holidays without a wintry haunted hotel anyway? Mmm, snow, elevators full of blood, all that good stuff. All right, well, it's time to dive into the story of Flight 401. Let's do it. You know, before we did this, I thought I had heard of this story, but I don't think I had. I mean, even if I, even if I heard about it when I was a kid, which would have been the right time, three, four, five, if the movie re-ran on TV or something, Ernest Borgnine, I used to be a big fan of his. Right. But I don't think I did. You know, I think I was mixing it up a little bit with a, a famous trucker song called Phantom 309. <laughs> well, <laughs> Flight 401, Phantom 309. Well, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, paranormal or phantom stories that have the number of a vehicle of some kind, either a submarine or a flight. There's often a number that's incorporated into the title because it, it does make you remember it. But that's a note I'm actually going to talk about at the end of the show where there might be something about machines that travel and humans that interact with them. There's some kind of connection there and, and special bond, some special circumstances, something about it that does make you remember it. But yes, I actually remember watching these on TV when they aired and there were actually two made-for-TV movies that both aired, I believe, in 1978. One was called Crash, and that aired in October, and that was based on a pretty well-respected book by Rob and Sarah Elder in their 1977 book called Crash, and that was also the name of the TV movie. And I think that one starred William Shatner as an NTSB investigator. Oh, cool. Yeah, they didn't get a lot of the stuff right. His TV yeah. movies of the day did not. But the other one that was maybe a little more fun, I guess, is called The Ghost of Flight 401. That aired earlier in February. And that one, though, had Ernest Borgnine as the captain, yes. I believe. And also another favorite, Dr. Johnny Fever, yes. Howard Hessman from WKRP in Cincinnati. Yes. And another name that popped up, Tom Clancy. Now, I was going to ask you, is that the Tom Clancy from the novels? No, it, it is not. And of course, I, I was trying to look and see if it was because he would have been a lot younger. But no, it's a different Tom Clancy. Yeah, who is also <laughs> deceased, by the way. But yes. Right. Well, the Ghost of Flight 401, that TV movie, actually, as the name would imply, 
focuses more on the ghost story connected to Flight 401 than the other one, Crash, which of course then focuses more on the NTSB investigation of the crash. Yes, and Borgnine, he was the king of disaster movies, really, back then. You know, he was in the Towering Inferno, <laughs> wasn't he? I think he was. And he, or no, maybe uh, well, he wasn't. The no, Poseidon Heston Adventure. Was. The Poseidon yeah. Adventure, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, no, and, that was a huge one that he was in. And he was just everywhere. He could do comedy, he could do drama, a really great actor. Yes. All right, well, let's talk about the specifics of the flight for that evening and the cabin crew and the flight crew that were aboard. At 7.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Friday, December 29, 1972, an Eastern Airlines L-1011 jet originating from Tampa, Florida, arrived at John F. Kennedy Airport, a hub for Eastern, for routine maintenance. After minor issues were resolved, the plane was cleared for a 9 p.m. departure as Flight 401. At 9.20 p.m., Eastern Airlines Flight 401 had departed Terminal 1 at JFK International Airport in Queens, New York, for a regularly scheduled flight to Miami International Airport in Miami, Florida. On board were 13 flight crew members and 163 passengers, 176 souls in all. The pilot of Flight 401 was Captain Robert Bob Albin Loft, age 55 at the time. Captain Loft, who was in command of the flight, was a veteran commercial airline pilot with an accumulated total of 29,700 hours of flight time during his career, with 280 hours logged with the L-1011 aircraft, which was a relatively new plane. He was ranked 50th in seniority at Eastern Airlines, having worked there for 32 years. The first officer, Captain Loft's co-pilot, was Albert John Burt Stockstill. He was 39 years old. First Officer Stockstill had 306 hours logged in the L-1011 and 5,800 hours of flight time overall. So he actually had more flight time in the L-1011 than Captain Loft, but less overall experience. Burt Stockstill was a former U.S. Air Force pilot who was upgraded to first officer the previous year after working as a flight engineer for Eastern for 12 years prior. The second officer for Flight 401, who also serves as the flight engineer, was Donald Lewis, or Don Repo. He was 51 years old. He had 53 hours logged in the L-1011 and 15,700 hours of flying experience overall. Don Repo started his career at Eastern Airlines in 1947, working as an aircraft mechanic, and then in 1955, he qualified as a flight engineer. Angelo Donadeo, aged 47, was a technical officer for Eastern Airlines. He was also on board with the flight crew, but was listed as a non-revenue passenger as he was off-duty and on the return flight to Miami after having completed a work assignment in New York. The airline slang for employees hitching a free ride when returning from a duty assignment is called deadheading. So he was a deadhead passenger. The cabin crew of Flight 401 was composed of flight attendants Pat Gissels, Trudy J. Smith, Adrian Ann Hamilton, Sue F. Tebbs, Dorothy M. or Dottie Warnock, Beverly Jean Raposa, Stephanie Stanich, Patricia R. or Patty George, Sharon R. Transu, and lead flight attendant Mercedes V. or Mercy Ruiz. There's a fun photo of them all taken together in the back of Flight 26 earlier in the day while on the ground in Miami. We'll try to post that on the webpage for this episode. The aircraft they were flying in on the route that day was a Lockheed L-1011-1 TriStar with registration or bureau number of N310EA. The plane was only a little over four months old, having been delivered to Eastern Airlines on August 18, 1972 and entering service three days later. It was the 10th L-1011 TriStar acquired by Eastern and numbered 310 in its fleet. 
A nickname that Eastern Airlines gave for their L-1011s was Whisperliner, due to its relatively quiet flight operation compared to other jetliners of the time. The L-1011 TriStar had a seating capacity of 400 passengers and a range of over 4,000 nautical miles. The L-1011-1 first flew in November of 1970 before being delivered to Eastern Airlines in 1972. It was the third wide-body commercial airliner to be operated after the McDonnell Douglas DC-10 and the Boeing 747. It had a tri-jet configuration composed of three Rolls-Royce RB211 engines, one under each wing with the number two engine center-mounted on top of the upper fuselage and embedded in the tail with an S-duct air inlet. The L-1011 has an autoland capability, as we mentioned in the cold open, an automated descent control system, and available lower deck galley and lounge facilities. Lockheed manufactured a total of 250 TriStar jets between 1968 and 1984, assembled at the plant near the Palmdale Regional Airport, north of here in L.A. But sales of the plane were impeded by financial and engineering problems at Rolls-Royce, which was the only manufacturer of the L-1011's engines. Lockheed closed down its commercial aircraft manufacturing at the end of the production run due to its sales being below target. And uh, Forrest, I was going to tell you this. I, I actually flew on these a ton when I was a kid. My parents have been divorced since I was two. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of flying. We weren't, mm. for a while, we were in the same state, but eventually we got kind of spread out. And every summer I would fly halfway across the country. And back then, kids flew alone a lot. And I flew alone a lot, even as a young kid. And I remember being on L 1011s, on Eastern Airline L 1011s, mm-hmm. fairly frequently. And it was a cool plane. I, I really right. liked it back then. I didn't do a lot of flying as a kid. I think my first flight might have been on the Boeing 747, the other wide-body jet. Yeah. And that was quite an experience on a massive plane. So that was also pretty overwhelming for a little kid like myself to sit up there in this plane and go take a look at the cockpit because you could do that back then. The the pilots would let you... uh, come up to the cockpit and take a look around and sit in the seat if they weren't busy. I have to say, they actually let my son do that in a 777 about a year and a half ago. I was really surprised. Wow, post him... 9-11, huh? Yeah, he didn't get to sit in the seat, but he was all the way up in there. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, especially for a little kid. And the L-1011 is in this small group of being one of the first jumbo jets. And this is also from the wiki entry. The L-1011, as of 2019, is the last non-Russian wide-body airliner to enter production that isn't made by the duopoly of Airbus and Boeing or their predecessor companies. And one other thing, L-1011 is also the name of a band I like, (laughs) based here in L.A. Oh, nice. Well, here's a description of the plane from this great website, which is really one of the best websites I've come across on this story. And it's a tribute and a memorial and a really good accounting of the entire story and I just discovered it a few hours ago. <laughs> uh, that's the way it always happens with us folks. It's like you'll, you'll do all this research and it's like, oh, well, here's a treasure trove of really solid information. I wish I saw this a week ago, but that wasn't the case. But I thought I'd get some stuff in here and they have a really great description of the plane. And the title page on the website is listed as Eastern Airlines Flight 401, the story of the world's first crash of a jumbo jet as told by survivors. We'll have that link, of course. But here's a description of the plane and just how luxurious it was and and massive. Quote, The plane sat as high as a five-story building and was longer than the entire Wright Brothers' first flight. In fact, if the L-1011 was parked in Yankee Stadium with its tail over home plate, the wings would span both first and third base with yards to spare. Eastern's version of the aircraft was configured to carry 229 passengers, but if an airline had wanted to, there was enough space on board to cram in 400 people. As far as Eastern was concerned, 
the new Whisper Liners were the most comfortable airplanes ever built, boasting 8-foot ceilings, indirect lighting, individual temperature control, music headsets, and living room comfort. The outside of the plane was painted white with purple and blue. Eastern's name for the specific shade of the color was known as ionosphere blue. A chandelier decorated the front of the airplane, and there was a stand-up padded bar in the back. Perhaps the most interesting feature of the L-1011 was the kitchen, equipped to serve dinner for 324, which was tucked below decks, accessible by two elevators from the main cabin, end quote. Wow, that's a pretty intense description. You know that stripe they used to put down the sides of the planes? They, a lot of planes had these mm-hmm. in the 70s. You know what that's called? I learned that during the course of research on this show. It's called a cheat line. <laughs> and I guess they were yeah. they painted them on the planes because they wanted to break up what a plane looked like with the windows all down the side. Mm-hmm. that those were kind of breaking up the beauty of the appearance of the plane. So they put a, a cheat line of paint across where the windows were to smooth out that look. If you were looking at the plane, so it would be uh, more elegant to look at. Maybe much like the Janet Airlines that fly out of Las Vegas. Yeah, there you go. With the red stripe. The overall point is that this airplane was a super nice, luxurious airplane, and this was a well-seasoned crew with a lot of experience. Even the flight engineer, who had a limited number of hours on this aircraft, was said to have been extremely familiar with it, even though he had only been on it a little while, because he had so much experience in general. Even though he had a small number of hours in the L-1011, he had a ton of experience overall in the air. Yeah, these were seasoned airline veterans, just exactly the type of flight crew you want flying your plane. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Thor MacArthur, and when I'm not bashing giants, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, back to the show. It was a routine flight for 401 until it began its descent and approach to Miami International Airport at 11.32 p.m. First Officer Bert Stockstill had initiated lowering the landing gear, but noticed that the green light indicator, which lets the crew know that the nose gear is in the down and locked position, had not lit up. The pilot cycled the landing gear, but again, the light did not come on. The investigation afterward would find that the cause was a burned-out light bulb. Captain Bob Loft got on the radio and told Miami Air Traffic Control that they would abort their landing approach and requested if they could remain in a holding pattern, even though the landing gear could and may have been lowered manually. The tower controller gave instructions for them to climb to 2,000 feet and then maintain a westerly heading over the Florida Everglades in what's called a racetrack pattern. What follows is a partial transcript from the airplane's cockpit voice recorder at that moment. At 11.41 and 40 seconds, Miami Approach Control, Radios 401. Eastern uh, 401, how are things coming up there? 
Four seconds later, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 responds. At 11.41 and 47 seconds, Miami Approach Control replies. Second Officer Don Repo was told to go into the avionics bay under the flight deck, nicknamed the Hell Hole, so he could look through a small portal window to visually confirm that the nose gear was actually down, which he, according to the accident report, was unable to do. In the meantime, the remaining crew dismantled the indicator light assembly for the nose gear. One report stated that they were able to lower the gear and had confirmed that it lowered properly, and that they were also able to confirm that the incandescent light bulb for the gear position indicator was burned out. Nevertheless, the four flight crew members continued to investigate the malfunctioning light. After reaching their assigned altitude of 2,000 feet, First Officer Bert Stockstill was ordered by Captain Loft to put the plane on autopilot. The autopilot was engaged 50 seconds after reaching altitude. The L-1011 flew level for the next minute and 20 seconds, but then descended 100 feet, where it again flew level for another two minutes. After the two minutes of level flight, the plane began to descend so steadily that none of the crew noticed it. Over the course of the next minute and 10 seconds, the aircraft dropped another 250 feet, causing the altitude warning alarm located under the engineer's bench to go off. There was no indication from the cockpit voice recorder that any of the other crew members had heard the chime, and second officer Don Repo had left his workstation to go below deck into the avionics bay. 50 seconds after the warning alarm, the plane was now at 1,000 feet. First officer Stockstill began another turn of the jetliner onto a heading of 180 degrees and finally noticed the gradual drop in altitude. Stockstill alerted Captain Loft immediately, but by then it was too late. Flight 401 hit the ground traveling 227 miles per hour, over 18 and a half miles from the end of runway 9L, west-northwest of Miami. Because the plane was in mid-turn, the L-1011's left wingtip hit the deck first in a 28-degree left bank, followed by the port or left number one engine, then the port landing gear assembly and main undercarriage. The wingtip strike was indicated on the ground by small metal fragments appearing at the first contact point and extending for 49 feet. Before two of the plane's landing gear legs were torn off, three paths were plowed out of the swampy mud and sawgrass, each 5 feet wide and 115 feet long, going in a southwesterly direction. Then the port, or left side number one engine hit, and disintegrated, scattering parts along with pieces of the port wing and port tailplane. The main fuselage had begun to disintegrate 490 feet from the initial strike point, leaving a trail of debris consisting of the cargo compartments, lower deck galley, and pieces of the cabin's interior. Then the starboard, or right wing, hit 820 feet along the strike path, leaving a 59-foot-long gouge in the mud. As the three major sections of the fuselage continued to break apart, more debris scattered over a wider area, leaving twisted metal fragments, parts of the interior cabin, and passenger seats in its wake. As these three fuselage sections pushed through the muddy water and sawgrass towards its final resting place along the path of destruction, the tail cone and assembly was the most intact and was found the furthest along the trail. This tail section, consisting of the rear tail cone part of the fuselage, the number two tail-mounted engine, and the empennage, which is also known as the tail assembly, the fins that provide vertical and horizontal stabilizing surfaces for yaw and pitch, 
were found much further away than the other sections because it's thought that the engine attached to it was still delivering thrust throughout the crash. Yeah, it's kind of freaky to think about this one engine and tail cone still pushing its way through yeah. beyond the other pieces. Well, as an aside, empennage comes from the French word and term empenne, meaning feather or to feather an arrow, where the feathers also provide flight stability for the arrow. And I remember reading in the SAS Survival Guide by John Lofty Wiseman, he will advise you to always choose a seat in the rear of a plane as it's your best chance of surviving a crash due to the structural integrity of the tail cone, and that it seems to be the one part of the fuselage that breaks off more intact than the others. On the other hand, I've heard statistics that say people have survived or perished sitting in any section of the plane, so you're back to the luck of the draw as far as choosing a seat and surviving a plane crash. Yeah, I've heard so many different things. I've heard that you want to sit over the wings because that's the strongest part of the fuselage. It's reinforced. But then on the other hand, you're sitting on the gas tanks when you're there because the gas is stored <laughs> in the wings. Also, right. remember the woman that held the world record for the longest fall in a crash? She was in a tail cone section that, and fell from like three miles or something and, and lived. It's crazy. And fortunately, aircraft are maintained so well. That's why they can fly for so many years. They're constantly being upgraded and repaired and looked after that air crashes don't really happen all that often. And it is still the safest way to travel. So I don't want this to put people off air travel. But I guess if you're already put off by it, uh, nothing we say is going to convince you otherwise. Well, as for the rest of the L-1011, the center section of the fuselage had its roof sheared off but still had the inner portion of the right starboard wing attached. The port wing and tailplane had fully disintegrated, and there was no intact cross-section of the main passenger cabin remaining. One thing that oddly did remain intact and laying nearby was one of the large rubber life rafts used in case of a water landing. The impact and destruction of the fuselage had made it come loose from its stowage and triggered the inflation device. At the time of the crash, this TriStar had just 986 hours of total flying time. As First Officer Stockstill turned the plane the final time and noticed the loss of altitude and then notified Captain Loft about it, the last audio obtained from the cockpit voice recorder goes as follows. We did something to the altitude. What? We're still at 2,000 feet, right? Hey, what's happening here? And with that, Flight 401 from JFK to Miami had crashed in the Florida Everglades at 11.42 p.m. and 12 seconds, Eastern Standard Time, on December 29, 1972. Of the 176 souls aboard, consisting of 163 passengers and 13 crew members, 101 perished, with two dying after the crash. Of the fatalities, 96 of the 163 passengers died, as well as the pilots, the flight engineer, and two of the ten flight attendants. But 75 passengers and crew survived this tragedy. The crash of Flight 401 would have the highest number of fatalities for an aircraft accident in the United States to date. Well, we need to talk a little bit about the rescue operation associated with the crash. So uh, we've done some research on that, and we're going to explain to you how things were found after the crash first happened. Uh, the crash was actually first seen on the ground by Ray Dickinson and Robert Bud Marquis. Marquis was an airboat pilot, and these two were out frog gigging, and they raced over to rescue the survivors. Due to the leaking jet fuel, Bud Marquis received burns on his arms, legs, and face, but he kept on bringing survivors out of the wreckage that night and into the following day. 
Marquis was honored with the Humanitarian Award from the National Air Disaster Alliance and Foundation and the Illumitech Airboat Hero Award from the American Airboat Search and Rescue Association. Forrest is going to read some excerpts from an article we found republished on the official Eastern Airlines Flight 401 website that we mentioned earlier called Flight 401 Rescue in the Swamp, 35 years after an Eastern Airlines jet crashed into the Everglades, a rescuer looks back. This was written by Jeff Klinkenberg, who is a Tampa Bay Times staff writer, and it was published on September 16th. 2007. And this article is going to give you an idea of what kind of conditions Bud Marquis found when he got there and what the conditions are when something this disastrous happens and the heroics people find themselves doing to help the victims in these circumstances. All right, a word of warning. Some parts of this next passage are going to be a little bit upsetting, but we feel like it's important to understand what these people went through in this scenario, both the passengers, the victims of the crash, as well as the rescuers. So, uh, Forrest, do you want to jump in here? This is the story about the night a jumbo jet landed among the pig frogs and alligators, the cottonmouth snakes, and the yellow-crowned night herons in the Everglades. Robert L. Marquis, bud to his friends, wanted to eat frogs' legs. He was out there gigging frogs when it happened. A yellow flash. Boom. Blackness. Silence. It was closing in on midnight, December 29, 1972. Speeding across the glades in his airboat, Bud was the first rescuer on the scene. He saw tangled metal and smelled aviation fuel. He saw mangled bodies and heard the pitiful moans of the dying. He rescued some terrified folks. He doesn't know how many before the regular cavalry of official rescuers arrived in helicopters, directed to the carnage by his headlamp. He carried survivors to safety and made them as comfortable as he could. Then he was pretty much forgotten. Old and sick now, he lives in near poverty on the edge of the Everglades. His name showed up recently on a website, eastern401.googlepages.com, about the 35th anniversary of a tragedy that killed more than 100 passengers and traumatized dozens more. Quote, nobody paid him to go out there and try and rescue people, says Ken Pine, who recently fixed Bud's roof. He was just a guy out there frogging and minding his own business who knew he had to help people in trouble. In my mind, that makes him a real hero. End quote. Pine and others want to do something nice for Bud, perhaps honor him with a special day, raise cash for Bud's taxes, groceries, and medical bills. You know what would make Bud Marquis happy? If one more time he could harvest a mess of frog legs in the Everglades. Bud Marquis had experienced better nights of frogging, but he and his helper had 30 pounds of legs. Quote, Then I saw this great big fireball and the whole glades lit up. Then zip, the light was out. End quote. Bud revved up the engine and headed northwest. That section of the Everglades is a tangle of sawgrass, tree islands, canals, and levees. Fortunately, Bud was an expert. With the engine dangerously wide open, the boat slipped over the grass at 35 miles per hour. He maneuvered around all obstacles, then wham, aground. When he stopped the engine to push the boat back into the water, he heard a chorus of terrified human voices, hollering, moaning, shrieking. He cranked up the engine and moved towards the sound. He shut down the engine again to listen. Hey, hey, hey! Someone had seen his frogging light. In the narrow beam of his headlamp, he now saw enormous strips of torn metal. He saw openings in the sawgrass created by sliding chunks of broken airplane. He saw a man standing, shocked, in knee-deep water. Quote, He was naked. A lot of the people I saw were naked. I guess their clothes got blown off them. End quote. 
Bud helped the man into the airboat and poured him coffee from the thermos. Help us! Three women on the jetliner's tail, about 20 feet above the water, begged Bud to save them. Ladies, you're safe up there. You don't want to be in the water with me. Water saturated by jet fuel filled his boots, burning his legs. He felt helpless, hearing what sounded like hundreds of voices coming at him from different directions. He had lost contact with his frogging helper, Ray, too. Forgotten about him, actually. They didn't find each other until morning. They never met again, never talked again, and never will. Ray died years ago in Arcadia. In the swamp, there were bodies everywhere. Men, women, children, even infants. Some unspeakably maimed. Bud saw bodies strapped into seats upside down in the water. If he saw legs kicking, he turned the seat over. He saw a man sitting in the water with a neck injury, trying to remain upright. Quote, when I tried to prop him up, it felt like every bone in his body was broken. End quote. After about an hour, he saw the first helicopter. It seemed to be miles off course. Bud waved his light until the helicopter took notice. When the Coast Guard helicopter attempted a landing, the prop washed through hunks of debris dangerously around. Bud waved the helicopter toward a nearby levee. That's where the helicopters, one after another, landed that night, and where ambulances arrived to load the dead and injured. Officially, 103 passengers and crew died. 75 miraculously survived. Bud's heroics were featured prominently a few days later in the Miami Herald. He was mentioned in a book, The Crash of Flight 401, later made into a B-movie, and helped a Hollywood writer with the awful Ghosts of Flight 401 about commercial jets haunted by the dead pilots. Several survivors tracked him down to thank him personally. One gave him money. He can't remember anyone's name now. The old airboat, the airboat in which he carried injured passengers, waits on a rusty trailer with flat tires. It is 12 feet long and 7 feet across. It has a flat bottom and a high seat and a cobweb-draped engine and propeller. I could get it running, he says, fighting for breath. It needs new points and plugs, maybe a new set of rings. Wouldn't take much. A web forum, Southern Airboat, which attracts thousands of worldwide participants, plans to take care of the repairs. On December 3rd, Southern Airboat and other organizations also plan to honor Bud and the victims and survivors of Eastern Flight 401 with a service at a barbecue in Miami. Afterward, folks hope to take the old man into the Everglades, in his own airboat, if he wants. Bud wants to. He wants to show them how to gig frogs. I think I can still do it. I really do think I can gig some frogs if I had to. Wow, that's, and those are excerpts from that article. That's great. We have a link to the yeah. entire article if you want to read it. And so that's back from 2007. This was a while ago, 12 years ago. So yeah, it's an interesting story. It's an interesting look at how somebody's life is touched by this. You know, a rescuer like that, the first person on the scene, is just a life-changing event. Yeah, and I think he's got a little PTSD from that, a section that we, I don't think, read. He doesn't like to talk about it, and he never does, but his wife can tell when he gets this look on his face that he's thinking about it, yeah. and he's never forgotten it. The reason that we wanted to tell you the story here from his perspective is that this is a really awful thing, and I know a lot of people make light of it with ghost stories, and it's fun, but we wanted to keep in mind the tragedy of this all. In, in that it was horrible. It was horrible for the people that, uh, of course, did not survive, but also horrible for those that did. Well, the other heroes of the rescue operation were the eight surviving flight attendants. Injured themselves, they still helped others and gave out safety instructions, like keeping passengers from striking matches for light in the darkness, 
which could have been bad with all the leaking jet fuel. They also got everyone singing Christmas carols to keep up uh, morale and alert rescuers to their location, since it was a dark night with a waning crescent moon, and flashlights were not part of standard equipment on commercial airlines in those days. Former NASA astronaut Frank Borman took a helicopter to the crash site himself to investigate and help survivors. After retiring from NASA and the U.S. Air Force in 1970, he was the senior vice president for operations at Eastern Airlines and later became CEO of Eastern in 1975 and chairman of the board in 1976. Before that, as an astronaut, Borman set a 14-day spaceflight endurance record as commander of Gemini 7. As commander of Apollo 8, he was the first of 24 humans to fly around the moon, along with crewmates Jim Lovell and Bill Anders. As of 2019, Frank Borman is the oldest living former American astronaut, 11 days older than Jim Lovell. All of the survivors were injured in the crash, with the most common injuries being bone and rib fractures and damage to spines, hips, and legs. 14 survivors suffered burns, 60 had serious injuries, and 17 suffered minor injuries not requiring hospitalization. Survivors got all cut up on the sharp sawgrass. The mud of the Everglades actually seemed to help pack the bleeding wounds of some survivors, but at the same time, the bacteria and organisms in the swamp water and mud caused eight passengers to become infected. Most fatalities occurred in the central cabin section. One good thing the swamp water and soft mud did was to absorb the impact energy of the crash. Otherwise, the fatality count would have probably been much higher. There were reports that some of the passengers had been attacked by alligators after the crash, being so prevalent in the Everglades, and a cottonmouth snake can also be a very unwelcome sight in any situation. For the flight crew, Captain Bob Loft momentarily survived the initial crash, but died in the cockpit wreckage before he could be transported to a hospital. First Officer Albert John Burt Stockstill was killed on impact. Second Officer and Flight Engineer Don Repo was able to be taken to a hospital, but later died from his injuries. Technical Officer Angelo Donadeo was the only member of the four aircrew from the flight deck to survive and recover from his injuries. Both he and Repo were down in the aviation electronics bay in the nose of the aircraft at the moment of impact, which may have had something to do with altering the impact force they experienced. Of the flight attendants, Pat Geisels and Stephanie Stanich, who were seated next to each other in jump seats, were both killed. So it's a pretty heavy toll on these folks and uh, just a, a horrible experience to go through, no matter how you look at it. Yeah, there is one interview on YouTube that we'll have with one of the uh, surviving flight attendants, much older now, of course, but she talks about just the moments after, and uh, it's a very human moment and a very touching one, but a tragic one, but people get through this mostly, you know, you'll never forget it, but people do carry on. All right, well, so let's uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about the accident investigation after the crash. The National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, for the United States, in their final report based on their investigation, found that the cause of the crash was essentially pilot error, stating the reason as, quote, the failure of the flight crew to monitor their flight instruments during the final four minutes of flight and to detect an unexpected descent soon enough to prevent impact with the ground. Preoccupation with a malfunction of the nose landing gear position indicating system distracted the crew's attention from the instruments and allowed the descent to go unnoticed. In other words, controlled flight into terrain due to pilot error and loss of situational awareness. The investigation revealed that the autopilot had been accidentally switched from altitude hold to control wheel steering, or CWS mode, while in pitch, 
In control wheel steering mode, when the pilot releases the grip or pressure on the steering yoke, aka the control column, the autopilot will maintain the pitch attitude or angle that the plane is flying in, purposely selected by the pilot normally until the control column is moved again. So you're going to think of this like the cruise control on your car, except that when you're in cruise control mode, the car will not only maintain the speed you're going, but also the direction the wheel is turned. If the wheel is not turned so that the car is pointing perfectly straight ahead, your car is eventually going to run off the road. The NTSB investigators believe that when Captain Loft turned to speak to flight engineer Don Repo, who was seated behind him and to the right of him, the captain accidentally leaned forward slightly on the stick, causing the autopilot to switch from altitude hold to control wheel steering mode. This minimal amount of forward pressure on the yoke would have caused the control wheel steering mode to set and hold the plane in a slight descent, unnoticeable by the flight crew. The same thing is believed to have happened to JFK Jr., except his vision was obscured by heavy fog and he was not instrument rated or too distracted to check his altimeter frequently for changes. As cited in the investigator's conclusion above, they also thought that since the crew was preoccupied with trying to fix the nose landing gear indicator light situation, that they didn't notice the altitude warning chime when the plane descended 250 feet from its set altitude of 2,000 feet in the holding pattern because second officer and flight engineer Don Repo were down in the avionics bay, otherwise known as the hellhole. He was also not at his workstation where the rear alarm speaker was located and thus could not hear the C-cord chime. The rest of the flight crew also apparently couldn't hear that chime. The pilots also had no visual indication of their descending altitude since they were flying over the Everglades on a dark night and nothing but black appearing swamp for miles and no lights or buildings to indicate the distance to the ground. Another interesting find from the investigation, which should show you how closely the NTSB investigates air crashes and how detailed their examinations are, has to do with the autopilot. This reply came from a poster named 411A on the airliners.net pilots forum, and it explains a little bit about the L-1011's TriStar autopilot system. All right, keep in mind, this is a, a very uh, quickly worded internet posting, so it's I'm going to be trying to make it understandable here. But anyway, he writes, for the Lockheed TriStar, the autopilot can be engaged for takeoff in CWS mode only. That's uh, controlled wheel steering. Once airborne, no altitude limitation for engagement is available in command mode. For approaches, it must not be engaged below 100 feet below MDA, which is the minimum descent altitude. Thus, it is allowed for circling approaches. For automatic landings, only one autopilot needs to be engaged, although two are required for CAT-3, which is that system we talked about earlier that allows you to land in zero visibility. When the decision height is 50 feet... It is used in many large commercial airports, for example, London Heathrow, which has a Category 2 and 3 landing system. The protocol is implemented with commercial airliners. Also, when you speak about an autopilot in the TriStar, you're actually referring to two autopilots, for each autopilot is actually dual channel, meaning two complete autopilots engaged with one switch. Thus, the TriStar is equipped with two dual channel autopilots, or if you like, and you would be completely correct, four autopilots. The Lockheed TriStar autopilot systems were developed by some of the folks that developed the very first autopilot approved for complete automatic landings. The Smith's autopilot in both the HS-121 Trident and the SC-3 Belfast, both oddly enough of British design, as were the autopilots fitted therein. We put that in there because our listener, Tony, who's probably going (laughs) to correct us on everything, he's an aircraft engineer. 
for an Irish commercial airline and uh, a frequent interactor with us on on Twitter. So the point is the TriStar has two autopilots, one for the pilot and co-pilot, each with two channels. Channel A routes data to the captain's instruments, and channel B sends data to the first officer or co-pilots. The NTSB investigators found that a greater amount of force was needed to switch channel B into control wheel steering mode than with channel A. So when channel A was switched inadvertently from altitude hold to control wheel steering by Captain Loft, First Officer Stockstill's channel B autopilot may not have been switched with it. So he may not have had any idea the plane was now in CWS autopilot mode, and that was flying the plane in a gradual downward pitch. Here's another thing. From an autopsy performed on Captain Loft, it was found he had an undetected tumor in the part of the brain which controls vision, but the NTSB investigation determined that was not a factor in the accident. So there were a lot of lessons learned about the downing of Flight 401 that later helped inspire improved flight safety practices, one of them being that flashlights are now standard equipment on commercial airliners and stowed near the flight attendant's jump seats. You may have seen one on a flight you took recently. Also, all jump seats for flight attendants now have shoulder harnesses installed. Another safety improvement for flight procedures that some believe Flight 401 helped spur was the implementation of cockpit resource management, also generalized later as crew resource management, and known in the biz by the initial CRM. But it seems a more direct and contemporary impetus was the 1977 Tenerife Airport disaster, where two Boeing 747 aircraft collided on the runway, killing 583 people. Then more formally the next year with the NTSB recommendation from their investigation of the 1978 crash of United Airlines Flight 173, where the DC-8 servicing that flight ran out of fuel over Portland, Oregon, while the crew was, like Flight 401, troubleshooting a landing gear problem. A short time after Tenerife, NASA also endorsed the training, and by the 1990s it became a global standard. Essentially, CRM is a set of training procedures primarily used in aviation safety environments, but any in operations where human error can cause tragic results. The CRM training focuses on interpersonal communication, leadership, and decision-making in the cockpit while still maintaining the command hierarchy of the flight deck. The procedures, for example, are meant to encourage co-pilots to question airline captains if they think they're making a mistake rather than to just follow orders. So it's pretty interesting. A lot of positive developments came out of this tragedy. Yeah, there's a little bit of debate there in thinking that that CRM was inspired by Flight 401, but it's more likely it was uh, Tenerife and uh, United Airlines Flight 173 that did it because they were a little later in uh, 1977 and 78. So that was implemented, though. But yeah, we do learn from mistakes, and that uh, Flight 401 mistake was definitely learned from. Well, after this tragic air disaster that would become the world's first crash of a jumbo jet, the survivors would go on to tell their stories. But as some would believe, so would the deceased, in a way. Soon after the accident, a legend started to materialize involving the pieces of Flight 401's L-1011 TriStar, subsequent Eastern Airlines flight crews and employees, their passengers, but most chillingly, possibly the ghosts of the flight crew from 401 itself. 
So I think a good framework here is going back to that official website for the crash and the survivors. And it does seem to list itself as something that is that is official that you can really trust with the information. And we certainly did. And that's the one we discovered pretty late. We'll have that link there. But basically, it's a good repository of different sections of the of the story itself, plus accounts from survivors where that's the one I tend to trust because the survivors have posted the stories there themselves. But it does have a little bit on this section about the ghost stories that have popped up because it is an ongoing part of the the story of the crash and the aftermath as well. And the site will say, it does give a lot of credit to material taken from the book. And it says much of the content herein is copyrighted to Rob and Sarah Elder from the book Crash. That's a 1977 published book, uh, Athenaeum, New York, and uh, used with permission by the authors. And one accolade that goes with it is, quote, I could only wish that I had been able to access your website when I was writing the chapter, Concern for My Air Disaster Volume. And that's MacArthur Job, who uh, wrote a definitive book on air crash disasters. And anyway, it's been uh, referenced in the Sun Sentinel, the Miami Herald, and the St. Petersburg Times. I'm Amber, and when I'm not working full-time or in search of the mysteries of the world, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. And so basically this chapter of the website here goes to set up that, yes, there are ghost stories, and that a lot of it was documented in the 1976 book, The Ghost of Flight 401 by John G. Fuller, and his book was later made into a TV movie. However, there is no factual evidence to support the claim, but legend has it that after the crash investigation, surviving avionics and galley equipment was salvaged from the crash site and then returned to the manufacturers and overhauled to help relieve some of the equipment shortages on Lockheed's fast-growing production line. And the majority of this equipment was fitted into another one of Eastern Airlines L-1011 jets with registration number N318EA. And that was while it was being assembled in Palmdale, California. That's plane 318, which comes up over and over. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it goes on to say, not long after this, the quote-unquote ghosts of Captain Loft and Don Repo were seen on more than 20 occasions by crew members on other Eastern Tri-Stars. And especially those, apparently, if you believe the legend, on those which had been fitted with the salvaged parts from Flight 401. One other thing that's really interesting about these full-body apparitions, if going to paranormal investigation mode here, is that they were very lifelike. The people that saw them didn't realize they were speaking to ghosts or trying to speak to ghosts, and they weren't responding in some of the cases here because they thought they were just actually people sitting there until they until they vaporized. The other thing about it is that the people reporting these sightings, some of them didn't know Loft and Repo, but they identified them later from photographs if you believe the legend. And here's another important thing about it I think that's really interesting. Um, This comes from an observation made by our friend Ryan Sprague, who is the host of the Somewhere in the Skies podcast. He wrote an article a while back about Flight 401, and I want to read an excerpted quote from that article. I do tend to believe most of the ghost stories related to Flight 401 because they seem very simple and innocent. These aren't evil spirits trying to torment passengers or witnesses. They are merely trying to find any way to connect or communicate with us through the only things they have in common with us, the stories they left behind. None of these stories are necessarily creepy aside from the nature of the appearance. Right. (laughs) Well, one other thing about the, I guess you could call the content 
of the stories is if you do believe in paranormal investigation and that spirits from beyond want to communicate with us for a purpose, and that is righting a wrong, telling their story, having justice done. In this case, it seems maybe there was a little bit of guilt from the flight crew about letting this happen, not through negligence per se, but distraction. And they may be wanting to prevent that in the future. And that does tie in with one of the stories we're going to hear. Some of these stories are more involved than others, and we'll be getting to that in a minute. But there's also some just anecdotal ones that we found uh, spread out across the internet in different places, which, and you all know the point of that. It, maybe it's just creepypasta, but it's still pretty fascinating. This one comes from an article at ozzy.com, O-Z-Y.com. We have a link to it. This article is called The Ghosts that followed Flight 401. It was written by Jay Bennett and published actually on hmm. November 19th, <laughs> believe it or what? not. Oh, no. The Daily Dose, November 19th, 2019. <laughs> I thought I saw Maybe it not, like a week ago. That's what this article says. Here's a quote of a couple of incidents that are cited in this article. An attendant on a New York-Miami flight opened an overhead bin to see Loft's face staring back at her. An entire Eastern cockpit crew saw Repo sitting among them on another flight. They claimed the dead man warned them about a faulty electrical circuit, which was found and repaired. Even an Eastern vice president saw Loft on a plane preparing to take off from JFK. So that's pretty fascinating. It's the, all these things made up, they're oddly specific. And as Ryan Sprague said in that other quote, kind of simple in, in terms of interaction. And very active. They're wanting to, seemingly wanting to check out the plane or make sure things are okay. So that is part of that, the trope of the spirits wanting to come back and help or make things right or just watch over those that are still alive. And sometimes they were just seen by crew and passengers in seats and lavatories, in the galley, sometimes in the cockpit. There were tons of stories floating around. And in one, there was a female passenger who saw a very pale looking and, and dazed man wearing his uniform. He was sitting in one of the seats near her or next to her, and he looked so unhealthy. She was worried about his health, so she called another flight attendant over to check on this guy because he was not responsive, and as soon as she got over there, he seemed to vanish in front of everybody. The passenger, the flight attendant, a few other people. So this woman that saw him vanish in the seat, of course, freaked out, as anybody would, as all the other people did. And once she calmed down a bit, uh, supposedly she was shown a photo of some of the crew of Flight 401, and she picked out Don Repo as being the man. Well, another good account of the ghost stories concerning Flight 401 comes from someone we've mentioned before on the show, Brent Swanser, and he's an author that has written articles for MysteriousUniverse.org, and this one is called Come Fly the Haunted Skies, dated February 13th, 2015. And he does a good uh, encapsulation of some of the, the more popular sightings here. And we have a link to this one as well in our show notes if you want to read the full article. Yeah, and here, curiously, uh, Brett Swanser talks about Don Repo being a very active spirit, being seen quite a few times here. One report describes how a flight attendant saw a flight engineer fixing the oven in the galley. But later, the actual flight engineer of that flight said he had not fixed the oven or didn't order it to be fixed and that he was the only engineer on board. And later, of course, that flight attendant would recognize from the photos that the man she had seen was Don Repo. On another occasion, a pilot uh, from another flight heard a strange knocking sound coming from a compartment below the cockpit, and thinking this might be some kind of mechanical trouble, 
He opened the compartment only to be startled by what looked like Don Repo, hunkered down below, peering up at him from the darkness. And of course, when the flight engineer disappeared and the compartment was checked, it was evident that there was a malfunction and that could have potentially led to a disastrous flight. But it also ties in with the story of Don going down into the avionics bay yeah. to look through the porthole window to see the uh, the nose landing gear if it had actually unfolded. So that ties in with some of the actual parts of the real story. There are other slightly more disturbing accounts of these spirits interacting with the flight crew, but in a way to help them out, same as this. Kind of a warning if you want to take these stories to be true. One of these stories is about an L-1011 flight engineer going through the pre-flight checks uh, right before takeoff, and suddenly Don Repo appears beside him and startled the man, and apparently the ghost of Don Repo said, you don't have to worry about the pre-flight, I've already done it before he vanished right in front of the sky. I think I would yeah. still check, but... <laughs> By the way, that's not my favorite Don Repo ghost quote. My favorite yeah. one was when he appeared in front of a pilot and said, there will never be another crash. We will not let it happen. Yeah. And I don't mean... I, I think that obviously specifically indicated the L-1011, although he didn't specify that. Right. But uh, there's a lot of incredible stories here that were circulating. And I guess you could say, some people say that they all originated from Fuller's book, but... I'm not convinced that Fuller made all these stories up. I think he found them mm -hmm. somewhere. They were out there. Well, I mean, I also understand the the sociological aspects of this where something tragic happens, stories pop up, they get reinforced and retold. But some of these are so specific. It's interesting, though, if it isn't true. One of the stories that is kind of part of the trope is the premonition part of it. And there is a story going around that Captain Loft had received a mysterious phone call a year, maybe to the day, it's always going to be to the day, but one that he told his wife, I believe he was out gardening and he gets a phone call saying like, don't get on this flight a year from now. Don't on get on flight 401 specifically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. He was told that specifically and it's like, well, that's not going to have any context for him, but it was a warning. And where did that come from? If true. So yeah, the story of Flight 401 has all these great elements as a, as a legend, and I think that's why it keeps enduring. So we're going to take the most well-known ghost story that we heard regarding Flight 401 and share it with you now. Some of the non-structural parts that survived Flight 401's crash were reportedly used on other Eastern L-1011s. The legend has it, most of them, however, wound up on one particular plane, plane number 318 to be exact. Word was already beginning to get out about 318, apparently. So much so that Eastern was considering changing its number. According to author John G. Fuller, in the Kindle edition of his book, The Ghost of Flight 401, the general public didn't know a lot of the ghost stories circulating about plane 318. It was a hot topic, though, in the airline world. Fuller shared an article about a story from a Flight Safety Foundation newsletter that he acquired during his research. This article specifically refers to airplane number 318. What follows is our own retelling of the article and Fuller's research on the topic. Sometime in 1973, L-1011 number 318 was airborne when a flight attendant had gone into the lower galley to prepare service for the passengers. This was a relatively large kitchen area accessible by elevators for the crew and containing lifts to transport food and carts up and down from the main cabin. You can find a video tour of one in our show notes for this episode. During this particular passenger-laden flight, she happened to glance into one of the glass windows of one of the ovens. 
when she saw something she couldn't believe. At first, she thought it was her own reflection, but no. It was a man. Well, the head of one, anyway. It was an apparition of a disembodied head inside the oven. On top of that, she apparently recognized it as Don Repo, the now-deceased flight engineer from Flight 401. He was the one who was down below the cockpit checking the front landing gear's position in reaction to the warning light when the plane crashed into the Everglades. The flight attendant was in a bit of shock at seeing Repo's face, so she went back up to the main cabin and asked another attendant to join her in the lower galley to look at something. When she got there, she saw the exact same thing. A ghostly head floating in the oven. Both flight attendants then decided to have the flight engineer come down and see for himself. He was also able to see Repo's head in the oven, and on top of that, he spoke to it, at which point it issued an ominous warning. Watch out for fire on this airplane. Although it landed safely that day, not too long after it was on the ground in Mexico City when one of the engines caught fire and had to be shut down, at which point the crew requested permission to fly the crippled L-1011 number 318 to Eastern's maintenance base on the two remaining engines. Permission was granted. The plane took off from Mexico City's airport when a fire now developed in one of the two remaining engines on the aircraft. The plane never made it more than 400 feet off the ground during that entire flight. All right, well, here's the big question. Are any of these ghost stories based in fact? Were any parts used off the L-1011 and Flight 401 on other aircraft, on other TriStars? Well, it kind of goes back and forth because I think the official stance is that, no, these stories aren't true. They've just been perpetuated by Eastern Airlines employees and also uh, people trying to write a good ghost story, trying to make a buck off of it. And there's no actual basis in fact for some of these parts being used on other aircraft after they've been salvaged. But is that true? Yeah, that's not true. There's there's more than a few skeptics that have said there's no, no 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 factual proof whatsoever. But we can tell you right now that we actually have been to a blog website called Eastern Airlines Flight 401 Tribute Group, the heritage of CRM, which we just talked about, the CRM procedures. And they all point to this particular plane as being the origin of that. And on this blog post that was made Monday, January 25th of 2010, and we, of course, have a link to it, there is a close-up of a flight engineer's panel which shows Flight 310, N310EA's serial number clearly shown, and it has an October 30th, 1972 Lockheed inspection sticker. And so there's this complete flight engineer's control panel from a British Airways L-1011 simulator from aircraft GBBGQ. The yellow arrows show the proper location in which the engine bleed control off Flight 401 would be located within the overall flight engineer's panel layout. So what's happening here is, I want to read this excerpt from the page. We at the Eastern Airlines Flight 401 Tribute wish to thank Mr. Peter Trapkowski from Germany for sending these wonderful photographs and to learn that a piece of N310EA cockpit has survived after all these years. The Eastern Airlines Flight 401 Tribute Group had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Trapkowski at the recent Miami Airliner Collectibles Show, which was held on Saturday the 16th, January 2010. That is where the Eastern Airline Flight 401 Tribute Group learned of Peter's extraordinary piece of history from their aircraft. 
Peter advised that the above panel, which has pictures, which was salvaged from N310EA, was installed and placed onto aircraft N318EA for Eastern Airlines fleet use. Peter, as an avid admirer of the Lockheed L-1011, was able to save this amazing piece of history off aircraft N318EA when the aircraft in 1996 was parted out in northern Germany. That's Airplane 318, where all the ghost stories come from. That is definitive proof that at least one piece of Flight 401's Lockheed L-1011 was reused on another eastern flight, which effectively eliminates some of the skeptics' position that there is no factual evidence that any parts were used. We now know for a fact that at least one piece was definitely used, and not only that, it was used on the plane that is the origin of the bulk of the ghost stories. And it's on the flight engineer's panel, by the way. Yeah. What that does for people, I believe, as legend and lore, it's a solid piece they can point to to say, well, there you go. It, somehow this piece from this plane has captured the spirit or is a, a transceiver for the spirits of Don Repo and Captain Loft. And maybe there you go. If you put this piece in another plane, they have a direct link to it somehow. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a piece of physical evidence there that ties the spirit to the story and that story to another plane. But do you need them? Do ghosts need some object in kind of a stone tape way to be somewhere else where they can manifest? Are they free to float around? Well, we don't know. But like I said, I think from a story point, it's a good anchor that people can point to and it strengthens the story. Yeah. Well, of course, we often talk about this scenario here where it is people and employees of some organization having a viewpoint or stories. And of course, the official viewpoint is that that is all baloney, it's bunkum, it's humbug. And that's kind of the case here with the Eastern Airlines. Well, the official website points out that a lot of these tales of ghosts or whatever were being circulated in the airline community itself. And there was an account even of these paranormal happenings appearing in a 1974 issue of U.S. Flight Safety Foundation in their newsletter. A lot of these, of course, were attributed to the investigations of John G. Fuller and his best-selling book, The Ghost of Flight 401, and he did his investigation, whatever he did. He interviewed a lot of people, even claiming to have interviewed a lot of, as it says here, cautious airline personnel, meaning they, they don't want to go on record, really, but he claims he interviewed them for these stories, and that's where the, a lot of this information pops up. But the attitude of the airline itself was that they did not want these stories to be spread. And as it grew and grew, Eastern management, they even warned employees that they could be fired if they were caught spreading these stories and that any logbook entries would be removed, mentioning any kind of ghosts. And it goes back to Scott's favorite passage in Close Encounters, <laughs> where you want to report a UFO? No, thank you. Because it's a career killer. Yeah, so exactly. you just don't talk about it. And even Frank Borman, the former astronaut who was... CEO and chairman of the board, called all these stories, quote, a bunch of crap, or he called them a bunch of garbage. One of those two, probably both. <laughs> and he actually considered suing the producers of that 1978 made-for-TV movie uh, for libel because he doesn't want any of this kind of woo-woo stuff associated with flying when the aim is really to soothe passengers to use your airline, not spook them. <laughs> They're worried enough about flying. You don't need to scare them with ghost stories. So I can understand that corporate angle here. But I believe in the end, 
Borman and Eastern Airlines did not go after John G. Fuller and try to sue him because they thought it would just bring more publicity to it. So they let it drop. But there's another curious statement that actually appears in the wiki entry, and that is from Air Crash Investigations, dated March 4th, 2015, the title being Mayday Air Crash Investigation, Fatal Distraction, Who's at the Controls, stating that all parts that were cannibalized from Flight 401's airframe were eventually removed from other Eastern Airlines aircraft. So there you go. Maybe something that also points to parts being used. Going back to what I just said about that panel that we know was on 318, it stayed all the way on 318 until it got parted out. So contrary to whatever point we might make about Eastern removing all the parts, which is something I wanted to talk about in my conclusions, clearly that part was still on 318 when it went to Germany to be parted out itself, which means it stayed on the aircraft for the rest of its life. I'm Ari, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. This goes back to the idea of these parts being on the plane. No matter what people say about the parts never being used on another plane, we know for a fact, because of what we just talked about, that panel did go over to plane 318. However, contrary to the counterpoint that Eastern removed every single part from 318, they clearly didn't because when 318 went to Germany to be retired and parted out, that thing was still on there because that's when that guy recovered it. He recovered that panel that was originally on Flight 401. So you can look at it both ways. In one way, you've got Eastern saying, or people saying in the course of this story, no parts ever went on to any other planes. And then we have hard proof that parts did go on to other planes. However, the counterpoint is they weren't removed by Eastern Airlines. They stayed, or in this case of at least this one panel, it stayed on the plane until it was retired. Yeah, well, there's there's back and forth to this, I think, at best, which also makes it a really interesting story because you have accounts from some people and what seems to be photos and proof, and then it goes back and forth of uh, talking about ovens and control panels and different pieces and parts, and that's one aspect of this ghost story. The other aspect is the ghosts themselves, the actual apparitions. They're not mutually exclusive. I don't think you need to have an oven from Flight 401 to have an appearance of a ghost from the flight crew of 401 appear on an airplane number 318. No, exactly. And that comes back to something that I've been wanting to bring up this whole episode when I I think I forgot or we never got around to, which is the idea that the parts had some connection to the ghosts. That's a, a human theory. That's some theory that somebody came up with. It's not like they went and did a scientific study. And they said, these Mm -hmm. ghosts are here, and we're connecting the ghosts with the parts that got reused. It's just people trying to explain the ghost stories, which is what people do every time there's a ghost story. Well, that happened in this house all those years ago. Well, it used to be there was an insane asylum there or whatever. People always make those constructs, but what you have to remember is that – All of that is pure speculation about how ghosts would work in the first place. You're right. It is speculation on that. And then, like a lot of things that have tried to be nailed down, there literally, there's so many moving parts to this that it really is hard to nail down. But if you look at it just from the story part of it about the apparitions, you know, the website, of course, and the official, I I believe, stance in this is that I'm not talking about the parts now and their provenance. It's these are the stories now about seeing lofted repo. A lot of these seem to be attributed to that one issue of the Flight Safety Foundation newsletter and the article uh, in it where an Eastern L-1011 ferry flight lost one of its two operating engines and the pilot had a very challenging landing. And that pilot was quoted as saying, 
he thought he saw the ghost of Don Repo. <laughs> but he was being tongue-in-cheek. At least that's the way it's being presented, and that, that was a joke. But it was also then presented in that book, Ghost of Flight 401, as fact. And interestingly, that pilot that you're referring to right there, and I'm only just now making this connection myself, mm-hmm. is the is Captain Paul Town, who was the former B-17 combat veteran. He was the one piloting that ferry flight when the second of those three engines went down and had to land it on one engine in the fire. And so right now we're coming full circle in understanding that it was Paul Town that apparently made that joke. <laughs> well, uh, again, there are so much back and forth. Uh, that website, again, and I believe this is quoting uh, Crash, Rob and Sarah Elder, their book. And and again, that is really considered a, a great resource here and one to be believed, much more so than the Ghost of Flight 401. There's an interesting passage that has probably been repeated from the book that ends up on the official website. You know, and this is talking about that quote, uh, I saw the ghost of Don Repo being a joke and tongue in cheek. Obviously, there were a lot of rumors that were spreading throughout the entire aviation community. So the passage on the website says that Eastern management must have taken the story somewhat seriously, however, because one retired Eastern L-1011 pilot I spoke to said that he had a second officer flying with him on a B-727 for several months in the spring of 1973, who was a self-ordained preacher, and quote, he swore that Frank Borman had paid him to come to Miami and perform an exorcism on 318, end quote. So like, that's a pretty crazy statement. So either Frank Borman is just saying stuff for the public, it's like, no, don't believe in this poppycock, and then like, hey, could you come perform an exorcism? Or a spirit cleansing. There's a whole thing in Fuller's book, which I didn't really cite, but if anyone wants to read that book, because as you said, it's sort of the less respected version of events that talks about a soul rescue being conducted on the plane, which is this idea where mediums come and recover the soul of a person who doesn't know they're dead. And that supposedly they did that on 318, and after that, the problems went away. And that's yeah. the story in Fuller's book. Yeah, a lot of it is timing, too. <laughs> the article goes on to say, this pilot added, however, uh, that he, quote, flew 318 several times in the late 80s and never saw any unnatural apparitions. Some weird-looking people, but no ghosts, end quote. Just because they look solid doesn't mean they're not a ghost. <laughs> well, that's what a lot of people say is that I mean, look at that guy you saw at Waverly. He had a baseball cap. Who knows? I don't know what that was. Yeah, yeah. I... I'm still wondering about that, but uh, here's an interesting comment, though, to talk about another retired Eastern Airlines L-1011 captain who this author, I think it was Rob Elder, that contacted the author there. This is the way he responded when asked about his experiences flying N-318EA, quote, I flew that plane and never saw any ghosts or anything of that nature. I do recall that some gremlins were on it, though, and they kept messing up my landing. End quote. That's great. Right. So no, I don't no, believe in ghosts, but I believe in gremlins. It really goes to show you, though, the the shades of gray in belief and being on a ship. We talked about this earlier. You know, when we started with uh, James Dean and Little Bastard, that's also kind of what inspired us to look at this story as well. Do pieces of a machine, can they, again, in that stone tape theory kind of way, imbue, embody, capture, contains some kind of spiritual element to it, and can that be transferred to another machine which also has problems or exhibits similar phenomena? And with Little Bastard, we were talking about race car drivers like, nah, I don't care. That's a rare part. Just just stick it in there. I need it. Yeah. 
But people on ships, and I think maybe more so for people who sail the seas, they're very superstitious about it. With airline pilots, even though it's a ship, there's a lot of terminology and symbolism that transfers over because it's also a ship with a captain. They seem to be less totally superstitious, at least outwardly, but they do have their little things like gremlins they like to hang on to to explain weirdness. Right. Well, one last back and forth piece here, a, a counterpoint, I guess, talks about the ovens having been salvaged from Flight 401 and reused on another plane here. This also comes from the the website. It says, further evidence that the whole ovens got salvaged story is untrue comes from claims that the ovens were made by Foster Refrigerator Company. Eastern's L-1011s came equipped with six Bomar ovens, Lockheed part number 671878-115 for you airline buffs. The oven choices for airlines were either Nordskog or Bowman Calrod brand. The Nordskog were installed mostly on the L-1011 500 series. Eastern used the Bomar Calrod brand. An Eastern flight attendant posted this photo that you can see on the website here from his L-1011 FA manual. You can see the brand name on the oven instruction plate. So, um, like I said, back and forth, like, well, that part maybe, but not the ovens. So it could have been an oven where Don Repo's head appeared. The last part of this, of course, talks about Fuller and his book and that Dorothy R. Loft, the widow of Captain Loft, and her two children, Kimberly and Robert, suing author Fuller for invasion of privacy over the book. And they claim that their deceased loved one's name was being used for commercial purposes of selling books about the fatal crash, and then, of course, a movie. And they were upset by referring to him as a reappearing ghost. And the family lost the suit and the subsequent appeals because the court cited, among other reasons, that the claimants were found to be actors or participants in a newsworthy story or event, and that the book was a non-fictionalized account based on the author's own investigation. And all of this fell under, quote, legitimate public interest. And that's an exception. So they lost the lawsuit, but they were upset about yeah. their, their husband and father's name. Yeah, understandably, I think. Well, here's a question. I mean, we've covered Gremlins, by the way. If, for those of you listening to the show and haven't heard our back archives or whatever, uh, we do have episodes on Gremlins. Uh, we also just covered the the curse of James Dean's car, little bastard. Apologies to mm-hmm. everyone overseas who was uh, apparently very upset by the use of the word bastard. I guess it's uh, wor- worse over <laughs> there you. than it is here. Hey, he painted it on a Italy. car in 1955. <laughs> I thought it was okay. We did yes. have a message from someone who said they couldn't even let their kid listen to that series. Um, but <laughs> Part of anyway. that might have been tongue-in-cheek. I don't yeah, know, but, but yes. <laughs> But anyway, um, in talking about gremlins and talking about all this other stuff forced, I'm curious, were you able to find any other instances of parts of an airplane maybe going on to produce problems, a haunted airplane or a cursed airplane or anything? Are there any other stories yeah. that are as famous as the flight of 401? Um, I don't know if they're as contemporaneously famous as flight 401 because it happened later, of course, uh, only a couple of decades. But it goes along with this whole theme, like you just mentioned, about well, in this case, curses. So if you look at Flight 401, it's not really cursed. Like right. plane number 318 was not really cursed. It may have had some benevolent spiritual guides looking out for it. Extra maybe. crew. Uh, <laughs> extra, extra crew aboard, deadhead yeah. passengers to watch out for it. Literally. But this maybe more ties in with a curse. And in the case of James Dean's Little Bastard, 
a piece being reused that actually brings a curse with it. And there is one story here. A couple of people had turned me on to this as I told them I was researching it. But it also has to do with whether you think it's unlikely that a piece of machinery that was in a crash would actually be used, especially for an airplane, something that's sensitive where it requires total precision to work. So if you think that it's highly unlikely that an aviation authority or concern would reuse aircraft parts by wreck, listen to this story. This comes from the website of the National Museum of the United States Air Force. So they should know, right? You would think. One would think. (laughs) Well, this is the story of a consolidated B-24D World War II bomber named Lady Be Good. And this was published on the website May 1st, 2015. And here goes the story. At 2.50 p.m. on April 4th, 1943, 25 B-24Ds of the 376th Bomb Group took off from their Army Air Force base at Saluch, Libya, for a high-altitude bombing attack against harbor facilities at Naples, Italy. All planes but one returned safely to Allied territory that night. The one missing was the Lady Be Good. Almost 16 years later, on November 9, 1958, several British geologists were flying over the desolate, sun-baked Libyan desert. At approximately 400 miles south of Saluch, they spotted an aircraft on the sand. A ground party that reached the site in March 1959 discovered the plane to be a B-24D. The Lady Be Good had been found. Evidence at the site indicated that the crew had become lost in the dark on return from Naples and had flown over their base and southward into the desert. As their fuel supply became depleted, the nine men aboard had bailed out, but had disappeared while attempting to walk northward to civilization. Intensive searches were made for clues as to the fate of the crew, and in 1960 the remains of eight were found, one near the plane and the other seven far to the north. Five had trekked 78 miles across the tortuous sand before perishing, and one had gone an amazing 109 miles. In addition, they had lived eight days rather than only the two expected of men in this area with little or no water. The body of the ninth man was never found. Numerous parts from the Lady Be Good were returned to the U.S. for technical study. Also, some parts were installed in other aircraft, which then experienced unexpected difficulties. A C-54, in which several Autosun transmitters were installed, had propeller trouble and made a safe landing only by throwing cargo overboard. A C-47, in which a radio receiver was installed, ditched in the Mediterranean, and a U.S. Army Otter airplane, in which a Lady Be Good seat armrest was installed, crashed in the Gulf of Sidra with ten men on board. No trace was found of any of them. One of the few pieces washed ashore was the armrest of the Lady Be Good. Ooh, that's spooky. I thought it was a good story to include. Yeah, Plus it's a good it's, story. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, you didn't want to read this. No, I want... tried to get you to cut it, I, but I'm glad you left it in there. It's good. No, it's, it's good. Like and I said, by the way, I want to tell our listeners, yeah. while you were reading as much crap as you give me for this, I sure. was Googling it, and there are so many amazing pictures of that airplane. Just Google yeah. Lady Be Good, and when you look at the pictures, you just you think about all these circumstances. It's really pretty amazing. I mean, it's a tragic story to think about those guys. One, I, I love World War II stories, I, I and World War I stories, of course, but uh, there's just something about that, and and what a tragic thing to survive the crash and just walk out into the desert until you yeah. you drop. Yeah. Going that many miles, that 109 miles, yeah, it's incredible. 
The other thing about this story, though, was that your common sense may say, well, these are precision instruments. They're not going to use any of this stuff in other airplanes. Well, this is World War II. And even Mike from our ARC, who was one of the folks to send this to us in our prep, he was also at first surprised that the website for the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force would publish an article that even entertains a story with superstitious bent on the facts. Oh, yeah. One, it was well-written, I thought. Ends very dramatically. Yes. But they're kind of embracing this little bit of airplane curse, legend, and lore. But then Mike in the arc remembered, you know, all of our research for the topic of gremlins as well. And then he wondered if there may be a connection between the idea of a superstition about a supernatural force personified as gremlins and superstition to reusing parts from a doomed flight. That is if I'm understanding his comment correctly uh, on our collection uh, uh, river, which is the aggregate site that we use for research. You know, how many flyers would outwardly maybe laugh off such a silly notion as aircraft parts from a downed flight being doomed or haunted, but secretly underneath, maybe not want to use those parts in their own aircraft. Uh, and then I wonder about a connection to the superstitious nature of sailors, as I said before, and, you know, how that might differ from those of pilots. You know, because apparently, unlike race car drivers uh, or those who travel over land, both sailors and pilots traverse vast and dangerous elements of which they are entirely at mercy. That's the reality there. Both aircraft and boats, neither one of those two items, if something goes wrong, can you just step out of and walk away? <laughs> it's the vastness of it. I mean, there's different aspects of it. You can look at the lady be good and it's like, yeah, your plane went down and then you have to cross the vastness of the desert. And that, that gets you on the Mary Celeste. If they had to leave the, the main ship and were in a rowboat, just the, the time spent in the rowboat with no food and just wasting away. It's just, it's just awful. It's insult to injury. Well, it is time for our conclusions. We hope you guys have enjoyed the show, but we don't want to go out without bringing our own thoughts to bear here. Um, Forrest, I think yours are better than mine, so I think I should go oh, first. And never, uh, never really we'll, we'll, fini we'll finish on <laughs> yours, okay? How does that sound? Okay. Well, I just want to say, when we started digging into this, I was relatively new to the legend of Flight 401. I mean, I feel like somewhere way in the back of my mind, there's a vague memory of it from my childhood. But oftentimes, some of my favorite episodes we do are ones where I'm getting to learn about it for the first time with a lot of you guys, our listeners. There's no shortage, as we've pointed out, of strong skeptical theories on why none of these stories are true. Most of them are rooted in the vagaries of the story's origins, and rightfully so. It's hard to pin down when and where they started or who might have been sharing them. That said, and I recognize I'm cherry-picking here, I think it stands to reason that if you work for an airline, and Forrest alluded to this earlier, there's probably a pretty good reason not to go on record stating that you believe in and or saw a ghost on an airplane. <laughs> it's probably the second quickest way to get permanently grounded and fired, the first way being reporting an unidentified aerial phenomenon. So when the skeptics say they can't track the stories down, I agree, that makes the basis of the stories thin. But I also think you'd have a hard time finding a pilot, flight crew, or even flight attendant that would go on the record about something like that. However, my own counterpoint to that is that plenty of the surviving flight attendants have gone on the record, now retired, and said nothing about the stories, as far as we can tell. So I would have to lean towards agreeing with the skeptics there. Other skeptics have said, well, just look at the wreckage. The plane was so thoroughly destroyed that nothing could have been salvaged from it. Therefore, the entire story is bunk. Well, we already pointed out that there has been a confirmed instance of a piece of this aircraft being used on plane 318 where most of the stories come from. 
And I'm actually stuck on this point more than the other points that come from the debunkers. There's not a ton of pictures of the wreckage of Flight 401, but there's a few. And in one of them, you can very plainly see a fully intact serving cart in the picture. I mean, it looks completely fine. If anything, the biggest question would be, how is it seemingly defying gravity by sitting at a severe incline? But I imagine the answer to that is that it's locked down onto one of those latches in the floor they use to keep them from moving around while they're serving sometimes. So that tells me that right there in that picture of the wreckage, we have a potentially reusable non-structural component. This is the exact type of item that was purportedly thought to have brought the ghosts with it onto plane 318 or others. Again, that's a human idea there, attributing these artifacts to ghosts. That's not like a ghost sat down and did an interview and went, yep, that's how it works. So, <laughs> but I, you know, I refute the idea that nothing could have been repurposed. Again, we've proven that some things were repurposed. Now imagine the cost of parts for that aircraft, by the way. It was $20 million back then and also brand new. Didn't even have a thousand hours on it. That would be $122 million in today's money. And still, none of those parts made it to other planes anyway, right? Well, that's actually not right. And uh, we've already pointed that out. So we found more than a few sources that clearly stated, eventually, all the parts that were cannibalized from Flight 401's airframe were removed from other Eastern Airlines aircraft, even though it looks like that panel stayed on plane 318 till the end of its days. But my question is, if Eastern did remove the other parts that had been moved onto other aircraft, was that just to stop stories from circulating? I mean, how could air crews even know which parts came from Flight 401 anyway? Like with the panel that was discovered, you had to look on the back of it at a serial number and its production date to make the real connection back to Flight 401. So my question is, if Eastern did wind up removing that stuff, was there something more to it? Now, I know I'm getting conspiratorial here, and it's something I can't stand about how my own mind works. I get that conspiracy theories don't make sense. I recognize that I have confirmation bias and apparently also proportionality bias and illusory pattern perception. Those last two mean that I have an inclination to believe that big events must have big causes and that I have a tendency to see causal relations where there may not be any. So I'm going to go ahead and cop to that. But at the same time, I'm going to cling to the idea that from a pure and simple business standpoint, there is allegedly a string of actions here that might indicate that the Eastern Corporation took steps to remove those parts from Flight 401 from other aircraft. If the parts were perfectly functioning and no one actually reported any real stories beyond Fuller's book, then why do that? And maybe it was just because they were worried about PR. We'll probably never know. But coming back to the proportionality bias, I can see why people have that. We have a tendency to think that some big happening, whether mechanically complex or big from a political impact point, like the assassination of JFK, must have a big cause. And, and yes, we have thoughts on that too, by the way. Forrest, I've got that one on the list for 2020, if you're ready for mm. it. Um, mm -hmm. I digress. But with the crash of Flight 401 and the tragic deaths of all those victims, how can you not hunt for a big reason that it happened? a reason that protects us from the idea of a seemingly random universe simply choosing to snuff out the lives of our loved ones or even us personally. You have to look for that. It can't be something simple. In this case, though, it definitely wasn't. The cause of the crash, anyway. We went over that. You can easily find the crash report online. In fact, we have a link to it. And in this case, the crash was entirely preventable, as we've said. But it was not one simple thing that led to it. I mean, you can trace it back to that light bulb, but it was the confluence of events that occurred after that. It was initiated by a simple thing, but that chain of events had to unfold that ultimately ended in the plane's controlled flight into terrain, or CFIT, as they say. 
It really all started with the bulb or the faulty landing gear position indicator light. That was simple, but the crew's reaction to it was complex, and that added up to their unintended descent. A lot of good things came from that crash, though, as we pointed out. A lot of changes, the flashlights, the harnesses for the flight attendants, all of that is good that came from that, albeit a little too late for the victims. So in the end, I agree that the origins of these stories are dubious and hard to pin down, but that doesn't change the fact that I also believe that if some of these stories were real, people might not want to officially go on the record about them, and I can see why. All I know is that if there's one thing we've learned over the past several years— Places that lots of people stay or travel to and and from seem to collect energy and echoes. And if a lot of hotels can be haunted and small towns near rivers and train tracks, then why shouldn't an airplane? An airplane sees way more people coming and going than any of those other locations. So that wraps up my thoughts on it. Yeah, a lot of interesting points there in that uh, it just does make you wonder. And considering your own biases to connect things and that, like you said, it was a chain reaction of events, or actually one small one, not even that big of a chain. We've certainly heard more stories where something small ended up as something big and disastrous. But here, just a little bit of distraction and overall a burnout light bulb and just human nature in that and also human perception. And then from that, it turns into more human perception of wanting to believe in ghost stories or something supernatural or or some kind of cause and something that lives beyond. And it turns into something else, whether it was real or not. Well, anyway, thank you so much for your your comment. And uh, I guess going last here, I do believe that there could have been sightings or spirits involved with Flight 401. After all, there are tons of paranormal stories connected to air travel and flying. It's, It's not unlike any other human activity that pushes the boundaries of travel and the human experience like paranormal stories of the sea or wartime, or even giving a car ride to a forlorn young woman wearing white on a lonely road. Maybe there's just something about people in motion. And there are tons of stories about people getting a premonition about something bad happening to an upcoming flight, and people have been spared when they've heeded that warning, or the opposite, when they didn't. So here's a little personal anecdote that happened to me, actually. Again, I I don't have any good stories of my own. I just collect stories from others that I, I think are interesting, and I tend to remember them. So I helped out working on a documentary about airliner crashes years ago. This was quite a while ago. And was directly told a story by this couple whose son sadly died in one. He was traveling. He was backpacking the world on his own. He was about 19 or 20. And one night, they both woke up suddenly as he appeared in their bedroom for a few moments, looking very peaceful, and then he disappeared. They knew he was traveling, but were completely puzzled at that moment about why they were seeing him. They were fully awake at the time, but they couldn't believe their eyes as he faded from sight. They found out later that he appeared to them right at or just after the moment of his plane crashing. You can now label this as a classic spontaneous crisis apparition, but this was years ago, and I didn't know about that concept. Hats off to Brandon Mazzullo there. Yes, thank you very much for teaching us all about that, schooling us in that uh, very strange phenomena. You know, I just knew that they were not on camera when they told me their story, and they were as sincere as can be. You could visibly tell it was a bittersweet story for them, and most any parent will tell you, you don't joke about something like that. So I believe someone appearing to others after their death, especially in connection to a tragedy like an air crash, is absolutely possible. But I'm not close enough personally to any of the people who claim they experienced one of these Flight 401 apparitions 
to know what to make of it, or if any of the stories are true, really. There seems to be a lot of staunch denial of these stories and evidence to the contrary. But on the other hand, like Scott said, it's not very likely these stories would be something that would be proudly claimed by serious aviation authorities or flyers. I haven't heard of ghost stories usually being tied to air accidents, not ones this famous, uh, with several of them anyway. They occasionally happen, but this is probably one of the most famous. So that makes me wonder then, why does this air crash have ghost stories attached to it? Is it a fluke of people's imaginations and creative opportunity? Or is there a kernel of truth to the accounts? And I know we all want to hear a good ghost story. That's why we make this show and why people tune in. But this ghost story turned out to be more about the events and the people leading up to it. And as with most all the stories we cover, people, some ordinary, some extraordinary, people and their lives and deaths and even beyond are at the heart of them. Just like with this story, some of the tales may be true, some may be a mixture of truth and exaggeration, and some may be outright tall tales invented to entertain and excite. But no matter what you believe, the crash of Flight 401 is a story of a very real tragic disaster, one that ended many lives and affected the lives that continued. So out of respect to those who died or lived through it and who might be upset that ghost stories they don't believe in are being perpetuated, I suggest the listener receive these stories cautiously. However, I do believe that it's possible there may be supernatural elements to the tale of Flight 401, which demonstrate that a legend often doesn't die with the people it's about. That's going to wrap up tonight's episode on the ghosts of Flight 401. We're dark the next two weeks, but we'll be back on December 14th with the first of a two-part series on the Stanley Hotel. Happy Thanksgiving to those of you in the U.S. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Thor MacArthur. Hi, I'm Amber. Hi, my name's Ari. And I, I give, give permission, permission to Astonishing, Astonishing Legends. Legends. And I give permission to Astonishing Legends to use my, my voice however they see fit, galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.